Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show. Today we are focusing on HIV and AIDS. And we're getting an insider's look into the Elton John AIDS Foundation. It's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Anne Aslett, the Chief Executive Officer of the Foundation. We'll gain insight into how the Foundation is tackling stigma and changing social norms, their innovative use of new technologies to identify and reach the most marginalized communities around the world. It's always a pleasure uh, bringing these case studies to you week after week, so I sincerely hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoy producing it for you. Without further ado, Anne, a big heartfelt welcome on to the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Excellent. Well, you're here in London. We're both uh, very close to each other, so not struggling with any time differences for today's interview. But what do we find out a little bit about the uh, Elton John AIDS Foundation? Tell us what it's all about. So the foundation is is a global grant-making organization which is dedicated to helping to end the AIDS epidemic. And um, we're based in London and New York. We fund on-the-ground services, uh, people who are organizations that are working in the field in anything up to 50 countries around the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. We have a program in the UK and a large program in the US. We are the fifth largest AIDS foundation in the world and the second largest for uh, HIV services to the LGBTQ community. Excellent. And the foundation was founded in 92, is it? 1992. So we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, um, which also happens to be the 75th birthday of our founder. Wow. Well, happy birthday on both counts. <laughs> what's the state of affairs? So enlighten us a little bit. What's the state of affairs with HIV and AIDS today? You have antiretroviral drugs. Uh, life expectancy is really no longer an issue. Um, is that is that true? What's the state of affairs? How would you characterize things? I think it very much depends on, on who you are and where you live. But uh, in the time that the foundation's been around, it has changed beyond recognition. When I first started doing this work, uh, AIDS was a death sentence. The life expectancy was anywhere between 18 months and two years. There was no cure. There was no uh, treatment. Um, and uh, very few people had access to any kind of medication that even made life a little bit better. And when you spin forward to today, we have... 22 million people on antiretroviral treatment, as you say, which isn't a cure, but it suppresses the HIV virus in your system to the extent that you can live an entirely normal life, you can have a normal life expectancy, um, and you won't pass HIV on to anyone else in any capacity with you know having children, uh, having unprotected sex, uh, any of the any of the routes that we know are routes of transmission. If you are on medication and you have what's called an undetectable HIV viral load, you cannot transmit the virus. So it's changed, you know, so radically uh, in this time. Certainly in terms of the medical treatment, we have great diagnostics. HIV tests are quicker and I would say easier than a COVID test. Highly reliable. Um, the thing that 
that still hasn't changed and is in pockets all over the world is uh, the stigma that still clings to this disease. The stigma and discrimination around HIV and AIDS is still a huge driver of uh, transmission because people who are vulnerable or marginalized, people who are, who are shamed or criminalized because of who they love or how they live tend to avoid services, are, are terrified of, of kind of putting their head above the parapet. And so that means that HIV continues to spread and they don't get the treatment and support that they need. Um, the terrible side is the stigma that you highlight. And, um, and I'd love to drill into that a little bit more because I imagine in some countries where 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 our human rights are, are not respected the way they are here, despite the fact that medical treatment could be an option if 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 being part of the gay community is a crime, then and and you have AIDS, you simply will not be seeking any sort of medical care, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean people who People who are gay, people who use drugs, people who sell sex, people in prison, people who are very poor, and also extremely worryingly young people who may not have, you know, the kind of agency to find out what makes them vulnerable to get access to treatment because the system around them, their family, their community um, deem that they're, you know, it's not appropriate for them to be able to access those things. And, you know, what, what I think is, is fascinating and tragic is that, you know, we tend to think of those things as being uh, issues perhaps in the global south. But in fact, in the time that I've been doing this, it used to be that all of the opportunity and all of the, all of the access to the best that medicine had to offer was in the global north. And in the global south, that was what was missing. Now you find these this kind of patchwork of those differences all over the world. So, so you find these incredible discrepancies based on prejudices and stigma and dogma all over the world. And, and you know, what we try and do at the foundation is promote an approach which is human-centered and which is about support and not punishment or judgment, because it's not only do we feel it's the wrong thing to do, it's entirely counterproductive when you're trying to fight a pandemic. And so arguably is the stigma and social aspects of this the key focus of your attention these days? I, I, and I'm asking because I imagine the technology, the, the medical treatments are there already to a great extent, right? So uh, I'm wondering whether your funding and, and what you're backing is more now related to social and legislative uh, elements versus um, medical research. Yeah, so I mean, a huge amount of our work now relates to, um, there are two things I would say. One is, is um, advocacy and awareness, which is focused on that stigma. It's, it's trying to make sure in the first instance that people who are vulnerable are counted, because in many parts of the world, there just is no surveillance about the number of LGBT, for example, who are contracting HIV. If you don't know how big the problem is, you can't put the right resources to it. And then trying to change uh, discriminatory or socially excluding laws um, that stop people accessing treatment and services. And then the other piece of our work, and, and we're kind of, you know, we're not in, in global terms, although we're a big 
foundation in the HIV space, we're not a huge, we're not a Gates Foundation type of size, is, is figuring out how we can work with other partners to find an entry point or a footprint or an access to very vulnerable populations and whether there are technologies that will help us reach those people in, in a more efficient and confidential and respectful way. Yeah. I love the fact that you guys try to reach those most marginalized populations that others struggle to reach. And I know that's one of the things I was really uh, interested to find out more about because who are these these populations? Where are they? And how do you go about identifying who they are, where they are? And since you touched on the technology side, maybe maybe you could shed some light on, on what that might look like to you in order to leverage technology to help you be more efficient on that level as well. Sure. So, um, I mean, I think something currently something like 62% of new infections globally for HIV are amongst people who use sex, people who sell drugs, uh, take drugs, um, people at the LGBT community, people in prison, and young people. So they're the people that we focus on. What I think we really learned in COVID is particularly with infectious diseases, if you leave anybody behind, if you exclude any group of people, you don't, you don't beat the disease. It just comes back at you. You have to make sure that nobody gets left behind. So it's a mantra of ours that nobody gets left behind. And we've always, um, I think from the earliest days, we've always our, our area of focus has always been the most vulnerable because we, we reason that, you know, there are other entities, there is multilateral and bilateral funding and that, that will look to the, the bigger scope of how you change things. In terms of how you reach them, I mean, I think, again, we found in COVID and with so many other diseases, you have to work with the communities where vulnerable people live. You have to really understand their experience and a lot of the work i would say all of the work that we do now is very much driven by what's now called human-centered design if you are a gay man living in kampala or nairobi or what is your lived experience what will you trust where will you go where do you get your information from um what scares you and then trying to build services around that rather than looking at the service and then, if you like, imposing it on the individual. Um, so we use a lot, of, uh, a lot of very different kinds of ways of doing that. One, which I'm particularly excited about, you know, AIDS is, is still the number one killer of young people in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's in the top three globally. And young people do not realize that they are... Uh, at risk of this disease, it isn't. It doesn't come high on their hierarchy of things they worry about. They worry about their financial future. They worry about women worry about not getting pregnant. Um, they, they, you know, there's a whole plethora of other things that they worry about. They don't realize their vulnerability to HIV, and often they live in societies which take a, a kind of restrictive view of what they should or shouldn't know or have access to. And there is a, a, a a kind of instinct from an older generation to want to um, kind of 
box young people in terms of what they should or shouldn't know about their sexual health. And that's been a big impediment. A lot of the services around the world, HIV services for young people are either for children or adults. And we know that adolescence and, and early adulthood is a very discreet time in your life. It's different cognitively, develop in a development sense. So what we're doing is we're kind of leapfrogging a lot of the traditional kind of ways of reaching young people. And we're launching a range of projects this summer, which uh, actually put the information and the agency in young people's hands, literally through their phones. So we're working with organizations, an organization called Trigger Eyes in Kenya and one called Prakelt in South Africa, where you can log on through your phone to a platform which is entirely confidential and encrypted. In South Africa, it's the WhatsApp application. And you it will take you through a whole range of different, it's an algorithm of a whole range of different questions. Do you want to talk about your mental health, which is hugely ignored for young people, uh, generally, but particularly for young people, about your sexual health, about your sexual orientation and identity? Are you worried about um, sexual violence or harassment, a whole range of different things, and then signpost you to more services either online or physically where you can go. And young people can actually through this app can, if you like, vote with their feet. They can use services and rate those services as you would a movie or a book or anything else and share that so that clinical providers know how to orientate themselves to actually provide the services that young people use. And if they're not able to go to a physical service because they live half a day's walk away from that service, or they're never going to get out of school, or the you know, some kind of controlling figure is going to want, is going to say to them, you're not allowed to go and do this. Um, we're working with an amazing organization called Zipline, which actually can deliver sexual health commodities, a pregnancy test or an HIV test by drone directly to that individual, which I had assumed would be an incredibly first world expensive uh, kind of solution. In fact, it isn't. We're working with Zipline in Western Kenya. They have a catchment area. They can serve a population of up to 10 million. And, um, you know, if, if, you, if you need to get a pregnancy test, if you want to get contraceptives, if you, if, you, if you need something for your sexual health or mental health, and this is all moderated by clinical professionals, um, you can order this on your phone and it arrives within 20 minutes, half an hour directly to where you are. And it costs eight cents. So, you know, tech has enabled us to do some really extraordinary things. And, and the work in South Africa, the platform in South Africa, um, we're actually, uh, you know, we'll be able to ascertain what kinds of messages, and this is messages that are in a format and in a vernacular that young people are familiar with. It's not the cold, hard, um, complicated medical kind of vernacular that is extremely off-putting and can be frightening to young people. It's done in a way with, with um, illustrations and video clips and kind of language that they're familiar with, that they'd be familiar with from social media. And that's going to enable us to, to really understand what works and what doesn't and how we make HIV um, kind of 
higher to top of mind for these young people, how we make sure that they realize their risk and they know that there's something they can do if they think they are at risk. And, and obviously, in, in many instances, sometimes they're at risk not because they're putting themselves at risk. They don't have the choice um, because of sexual abuse and, and exploitation and so on. So um, it's really exciting. And it's a, it's a way for us to really reach directly to those young people and say, we're here for you. We're listening to you. And we're, and we're through those platforms, we're finding a way for you to connect with other young people so you know you're not alone. Because I think we, whenever you have something really kind of extreme happen in your life, you do feel like it is a lonely experience. And particularly when you're a teenager, you feel like no one else has ever felt this way in the world. And so there's nothing more empowering or helpful than someone saying, me too. I, I know how you feel. I've, I'm, I'm there. Or I've been there and I can help you. How, how did you... Um... Well, how are these programs developed? I mean, how do you partner? Do I do you identify technology companies that you think, okay, they're doing interesting things, we can work with them? Do you connect the dots and then jointly try to put together some sort of tech-based solutions? How does this happen? Because it sounds great and it sounds, yes, that makes sense. Uh, but I know that there needs to be a lot of uh, groundwork beforehand, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a combination of those things. It kind of varies from project to project in the case of in the case of the work in in South Africa with Prekelt they had developed a platform called Mum Connect which was for pregnant women which has subsequently been uh, adopted and is supported by the South African government and so all of the tech and all of the potential pitfalls of the tech had already been tested out over a number of years so we knew that this was a platform that could work, that people could use. Um, we knew what its um, sort of versatility and capabilities were, but it just hadn't been used for young people in this context. So then we bring together what we know about, um, going back to the human-centered design, what we know about what's going on in the heads of a range of different young men and women, um, and, and start to work on what the content might be, what we'd need to know, from the services we provide in order to continually refine it because nothing's ever you know absolutely right when you do it first time um so yeah there's an awful lot of back and forth and development that goes into it often there's a whole human-centered design phase so we really really understand uh the community that we're working with um and then you know obviously putting together groups of young people who can provide us with direct feedback about what they think of the service, and then lots of data. I love it. I love it. And um, one of the things I'd like to do is say so you, you, we're covering great, great stuff about the the tech, um, the tech side of your work. You touched on community, and a, a phrase we haven't used, but I'd like to grab onto is the sort of social norms. And um, so we have the medical treatments, and we have the legislative framework. And let's say that both of those things in country X were fine. Uh, what about the social norms? Because despite the best medical treatment, despite ostensibly laws that would protect your human rights, in practice, that doesn't always translate into reality, into practice, right? So let's talk a little bit about the social norms and what, what that looks like and what can be done about that. So really fascinating. And I think um, and have felt for a long time, you know, we do... 
we do a lot of advocacy work with with um, policymakers and politicians and but we're also increasingly working with corporate partners because I really feel that um, companies and the products and services that they provide actually move social norms on faster and policies and governments catch up rather than the other way around in this kind of globalized world that we live in. So an interesting example would be we have a big program in the US. So richest country on earth, ostensibly protections for, uh, you know, people to access treatment and the best treatment in the world available in the country. And yet you have an epidemic with 1.2 million people estimated living with HIV, 156,000 of them don't even know they're infected and 400,000 of them aren't on treatment. So you got 400,000 out of 1.2 million people who should be on treatment in a country that helped develop a lot of the treatments and aren't. Um, and so we're working with Walmart. We have a collaboration with Walmart. What's interesting, and this is I talked before about an entry point or a footprint or an access. Um, you know, the HIV epidemic in the US today is concentrated in the southeast of America. I mean, there are, there are you know, obviously um, cases of HIV all across the states, but the deep concentration is in the southeast. And the deep vulnerability is amongst the Black and Latinx community for all kinds of reasons, because they have a mistrust of, and, and in many instances, a justified mistrust of the public health, of the health system, um, because of stigma and discrimination, sometimes stigma inside their community, um, and uh, because they're uninsured or underinsured or don't have the wherewithal to go through the hoops to access Medicaid and so on. Walmart, um, you're never more than 10 miles away from a Walmart, apparently. Um, and Walmart have over 5,000 stores, 4,000 of them are concentrated in the southeast. And um, 87% of Walmart stores are in what health and human services define as a underserved health area. So the, the correlation between the people that we want to reach and where Walmart has its footprint is incredibly strong. Now, a lot of people, because of cost, because of stigma or denial or, or all kinds of reasons, won't go to a doctor or a hospital if they suspect that they might have HIV. But they go to a Walmart for their groceries. They go for their flu shot. They go for a COVID test. They go for any range of different reasons. And so it not only provides a kind of a nice blanket as to any reason why you would be going to a Walmart and you're going there anyway, um, but there's also uh, it it destigmatizes HIV as a as an exclusive scary something that you have to go to a doctor for. So we are in the process of with Duke University of training seventeen thousand Walmart pharmacists who will be able to uh, really comprehensively talk to customers about HIV, about the risks, about taking a test about getting a test in a Walmart. Um, and uh, there's a community healthcare worker component, which the foundation is working on separately, which will help those people be linked to a doctor if they need it. And you know what? You could have, you could have um, your flu shot and you could do an HIV test 
on the same visit, it, it somehow takes away the exceptionalism of it. So we're thinking that will make a, a really big difference in terms of how HIV is viewed in the context of heart disease and diabetes and all sorts of other things that folks go in all the time for. And, and the reason I think that's, uh, we, we were sort of strong on that as well is we did, you mentioned before about, about social impact. We did a social impact bond in the UK, um, which for people listening is really, it's easier if you just understand it is it's a payments by results uh, kind of mechanism. Um, and what we found, we, we, I had assumed that in order to get the sort of five, 6,000 people who, who get HIV every year in the UK and may not get tested, I thought we would need lots of campaigns and public awareness and, and so on. We figured out that actually a much more effective way to do it would be to say in high prevalence HIV boroughs, and we have a national health service, so it's a slightly different system, um, Whenever you walk into a general practitioner's surgery or you go to hospital, you go to A&E, they say to you, we test everybody in this borough for HIV. Do you have a problem with that? And the difference in terms of, so you talk about social norms between saying, okay, I would like, um, I would like exceptionally to test you, Alberto, for HIV, or I, we test everybody in this borough for HIV and a number of other things. Do you have a problem with that? The uptake in the first instance is about 40%. The uptake in the second instance is over 80%. So, um, so we did this in two hospitals and a whole range of GP surgeries across South London. We found 40% of um, the estimated 1,100 people who were living with HIV and either weren't diagnosed or had been in care and for whatever reason had dropped out of care. Um, and we saved the National Health Service an estimated £90 million in on costs, particularly because, as I said before, if you're on treatment, you're not infectious. So if you find people and put them in care, that's a, you know, you're not, the epidemic isn't spreading. Um, and so at the end of last year, um, we took this research to the Department of Health. And particularly, we were able to demonstrate that the, there were certain groups that were massively missing out. And that was uh, ethnic minorities, women and older people. And surprise, surprise, you had the same overlap with COVID and people who were missing out from COVID. And this was sufficiently persuasive. Um, that uh, the government allocated a very decent sum of money to roll out the approach across the whole of England and already in London of, I think, the 28 emergency departments uh, for hospitals across Greater London, 26 of them are now testing for HIV as a matter of course. And they're also now introducing tests for hepatitis B and hepatitis C because that's also of great concern and is very nasty if you, as you know, if you if you get it. So I think, you know, sometimes in terms of social norms, it's it's where you place the service and how people see the service. So putting it in a Walmart was an interesting idea. It took us a while to get there between us and Walmart, but we suddenly both went, this is really something that could work. It's about how you how you frame it. And I think for perhaps too long, we've talked about, especially in, in Western Europe and North America, we've talked about HIV as this very complex, scary, dangerous disease. 
Um, and we haven't talked up enough the fact that there is great and very reliable testing. There is great treatment um, and you can live a normal and healthy life and not be infectious and not put the people you love at risk. So, um, yeah, there are there are different ways to do it, but um, very keen on all of that sort of work. Talk about quantifiable impact. Huh? And it must feel great when the government says, yeah, the initiative you're doing makes sense to us. We're going to take it on and do something uh Build up yeah, on that. especially, I mean, this was, you know, this was in in the depths of COVID. I mean, we launched it on World AIDS Day in 2021. We had, we were just about to go back into lockdown and it was very much, you know, there is no money. We have, we have, uh, you know, we're borrowing billions to cover dealing with this epidemic. But the the data, and this goes back to, you know, this is the data nerd stuff. The data was so compelling and clear um, and it wasn't our data, it was the data that was being input by the hospitals and the GPs that they said, yeah, this will save us a lot of money. And, and what I found incredibly, incredibly um, touching and, and uh, hopeful was that some of all the amazing clinical staff that we work with on this program, and when, when COVID first hit, you know, in sort of spring 2020, I thought, this program's dead in the water. This is not going to happen now because they're overwhelmed. And in fact, what all of these nurses and doctors said to us is absolutely not. It's even more important that we test people for HIV because they're immune, they're potentially immunocompromised. And so they're more vulnerable to getting it. And if they don't know they're HIV positive, they may not realize that they could get it very seriously and they may risk passing it on. So more than ever, we have to do this work. So our trajectory in COVID, we just kept going up and up and up. We're finding more and more people every month. So um, it was, yeah, it was a very interesting. Really excellent, work. really excellent. So we touched on the medical, we've touched on the tech, we've touched on the social norms. Um, I'd love to get a little bit of insight into into your trajectory, Anne. Like, you know, it sounds like you're doing remarkable work. Uh, you have a big smile, a lot of energy. Uh, how did you get here? Um, I uh, so I I never thought I would work for a charity. I was it was never in any kind of life plan of mine. Um, I was an English major, and in my twenties, I wrote and and I, I I worked as a journalist. I researched and wrote documentary ideas for broadcast television. Um, you know, all sorts of things, marketing and advertising stuff. And then in the late 90s, my middle brother, who I was incredibly close to, um, was diagnosed with HIV. And um, him, when I was growing, he was six years older than me. And when I was growing up, and particularly, you know, when I was a teenager, with all of the angst that that being a teenager entails, he and all of his friends were just amazing to me kind honest gave me advice made me feel I belonged just were lovely and and suddenly in the late 90s all these wonderful guys started to get sick um and what was sort of horrifying to me was if they'd been getting sick with cancer or uh you know some other disease Everybody would have rallied around and said, this is awful. What can we do? How can we help you? And yet with that, um, there was silence. And for very many of them, they, um, they dealt with this 
either just with their partner or with a very small group of friends, didn't tell their family, didn't tell their work, had to live with this absolutely crippling and at that stage, you know, deadly disease, sort of almost in silence. And this seemed absolutely inhumane to me. I was so horrified that these guys were were going through this. So I wanted to do something. So I volunteered for a a charity. I did a bit of what's called buddy work where you're paired with someone. I don't think I was really kind of, you know, what they needed or what was really helpful. But then I was approached by someone who was doing some work at the Elton John AIDS Foundation um, to say, look, they really need to kind of professionalize all their systems. And at the time I was running an agency, which was a whole group of journalists researching stuff and compiling it for the news media, for Reuters and, and, and all the Fleet Street, you know, broadsheets and, and so I said, okay, that I can do, that I think I can do. And so I, I did that as a volunteer. Um, and whilst I was there, two really important things happened. One was um, uh, one of these guys who was sick, who I loved to bits um, and was the most amazing chef. He had a, he had a restaurant in central London and he was um, in a hospital And in those days, people, I don't know whether you remember, but wasting, like not being able to to keep body mass was a huge problem. Um, And he was just wasting away because the food in hospital was kind of awful and the way it was structured didn't work properly. And so he'd have this watery plate of something that arrived once a day. So I sat down with five of, I said to the foundation, could I do something about this? And they said, you can certainly have a look at it. So I sat down with five nutritionists from different hospitals, um, the HIV wards of different hospitals, and we built these kitchens on the wards. And although they cost money, um, overall, they saved the hospital money because um, they didn't have to give these guys hundreds of build-up drinks and anti-diarrheals and all sorts of things. And when we had the sort of debrief and a year into the project, one of the dietitians on for one of these hospitals said, this is the first time, in tears, said this is the first time that one of my patients has gone home having put on weight and now I know <laughs> I, why I do the job I do. And they're still operating today. And I was like, this, wow. is, this is something else. This is the opportunity to see a problem and to really have the wherewithal to do something about it is like nothing I ever thought was possible. And so, you know, I was hooked. Wow. Never look back. Never look back. (laughs) And I have to ask you, I mean, many charities have a big heart. Not every charity has a big name. What's it like working with, uh, with Elton John? So he's amazing. He's, you know, I think, I think it's rare um, to have, a celebrity charity or to have a celebrity who has so committed to a cause over three, four decades and is still, you know, performs for us at fundraising events, goes and talks to legislators and advocates, visits the field, does hundreds of public service announcements and speeches. And he's, you know, he's 75. He's absolutely indomitable. Um, he's as passionate about it as he ever was. And and the, the, the joy of it, I kind of say to people when they join the foundation, we're 30 years old, but we're kind of still, an entre- we've got a startup entrepreneurial mindset because, and that very much comes from Elton, because he's like, if it makes sense, 
and we can give it a go and we can see whether it works, let's do it. And, and that's a gift because, you know, when you're raising money, it's, there's a temptation to be very safe and very careful about what you do. But really, I think you do the most interesting work when, when you put yourself out there a bit and you really see where you can push the opportunities. And, and he and his husband, David Furnish, give us that latitude. So, yeah, it, it's a blast. It's, I love it. I love it. It's a privilege. You have you have a dream job. Yeah. Um, I always I always like to ask our guests for a key takeaway before we wrap up. What would yours be? What What's that key thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Um, I think I think the thing since I've been doing this work when I started, it was very much you know all the know how and medicine and technology all existed in the global north. And the global south didn't have any of it. So it was how did you make that exchange? What's extraordinary now, as, as treatment has become so much more affordable and we've figured out how to get medicines all around the world, and is with globalization has also come a very unequal world. And you have very, very vulnerable, poor people in rich countries, and you have very, very rich people in, in lower income countries. And um, I think if we can recognize that, you know, there's a tendency when you feel safe to kind of put a wall around you and go, well, I'm okay. But if we can recognize that that inequality and, and helping people who are at the really wrong end of an unequal world is what makes the world better for all of us, um, that's what I'd love people to, to take away. Excellent. And it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks for joining me and joining us and for uh, for all the energy and the risk-taking, the sensible <laughs> risk-taking that seems to be paying off uh, very nicely. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Anne Aslett, the Chief Executive Officer of the Elton John AIDS Foundation. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. I thoroughly enjoyed producing this episode for you, and I look forward to catching up with you next week.